0: ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to another episode of Crazy Money. I hope it's a beautiful day wherever you are here in Atlanta, Georgia. It sure is a nice one. It's May 30th, 2023, in case you're listening to this in 100 years, in which case, hi, I'm Paul. I'm dead. But in the present tense, I'm very much alive and enjoying this sunny day and excited to share with you my guest this week. Bruce Feiler is a seven-time New York Times best-selling author of books like Life is in the Transition and the Council of Dads, which is this 2008 account of his battle with bone cancer and the very scary contemplation that his then three-year-old daughters would have to grow up fatherless. In the book, Bruce chronicles his conversations with a handful of friends, asking them to pledge to be there for his daughters if the worst happened. But fortunately, it did not. Bruce has stuck around to continue to raise daughters and to write books, And he's got a new one out called The Search, Finding Meaningful Work in a Post-Career World. I found this book both interesting, troubling, enlightening, and encouraging. Why can one book be all these things? Well, because, I don't know, I'm 54 years old, and I'm at that point where the attitudes with which I was raised, the assumptions on which I based my entire career, of the virtues that go into making a successful career in life, hard work, long hours, dedication, building skills in one particular area, all these different things that we took as given have changed for those in the economy today. The younger generations don't see work as a fixed entity in quite the same way as we saw it. We, those of us in the boomer or Gen X generation, They don't see it the same way. Life is moving faster. Change is happening more often. Change is happening in all different parts of their lives. And there's less of a separation between individual the worker and individual the individual. Paul the worker versus Paul the individual. We are one entity with many different types of careers going on in their lives. In fact, Bruce challenges the concept of careers. He challenges the concept of one job at one time and the notion of a career path. We'll dive into all that, hear how we got to these conclusions, and what implications they have for employers, workers, and those of us trying to understand just what the hell is going on in the world. Specifically, we talk about the importance of not chasing someone else's dream, why we both love Pat Conroy, the difference between our linear expectations and the non-linear reality of the world, and what it means to be in a meaning-based economy versus a means-based economy. Economy. The distinction is very, very important. Anyway, there's a lot to chew on here. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation with Bruce Feiler, and I know you will too. This friend is Bruce Feiler.
1: You know, I had a friend years ago when I first moved to New York who was the head writer for David Letterman, and he taught me something really kind of maybe transparently obvious, but that I had never known, and certainly as a kid growing up in Savannah watching Johnny Carson, I did not know, which he said the reason that Letterman was so good and, say, better intuitively, instinctually than Jay Leno was that Letterman understood what Carson understood, which is that it was all about the guest. Like, if the guest sounded smart— that people would like the host more. Right. Mm. So the next day they wouldn't say, Oh, I saw Paul on the Tonight Show. They said, I saw Carson. Right. And so that Letterman was very good at asking questions to make the host look good, whereas the people that are weaker at it, you know, were taking all the punchlines and, and keeping the best lines for themselves and mm. sort of insecure and therefore overshadowing the guests, not understanding kind of the basic formula of the form, which I thought was fascinating.
0: You know, you've listened to people like Terry Gross. She does a great job of asking questions and then getting out of the way. I did Terry Gross many years ago,
1: and she did something, you know, funny. Now it's kind of common, maybe with podcasting in general and the pandemic. She refused to be in the room with the person. I've heard that. Why do you think she does that? I think because she wants to hear it like the listener, right? So Mm. she was a radio person, and so she wanted to process it. You know, it reminds me of something that my agent says about, my literary agent says about book proposals. Like, I don't want to meet the person because I don't want to like them. I want to like him on the page. (laughs) I don't really care if I like him in person. I want to like him on the page, and I think it's a similar kind of concept. So for
0: those people listening, we're looking at each other through Riverside, which is like Zoom, but has more bells and whistles, which sometimes work and sometimes don't, as we've already experienced today. (laughs) So when Terry Gross does an interview, she's in a room by herself, theoretically by herself, but she's not looking at anything. She's listening and just talking into a microphone.
1: So different than how we'll say we're doing this because we're actually looking at each other. This was before that was, you know, when I did it, it was before that was easily done. So she's only listening, no eye contact, no reading the body language, none of that. Just pure sound of a question, sound of an answer.
0: What's that experience like compared to sitting across a table with somebody? Because one of the challenges we have in producing, especially since pandemic, everything has been done or 99% of interviews are are virtual like this one, as opposed to sitting next to somebody, being able to punch them on the arm and say, oh, you, so-and-so, whatever, like, the energy is totally different. How does she pull it off?
1: Here I can actually talk from my own experience because I've had, obviously she's maybe one of the greatest people to ever do it, so she pulled it off very effectively. In my case, I've had this experience that has straddled the pandemic. So, you know, in a sense what we're going to talk about today is I have now spent – the last six years, collecting and gathering hundreds of life stories of Americans of all ages, all walks of life, all backgrounds. You know, this is sort of largely in the field of narrative psychology, but, you know, the average academic paper in that field has six, eight, ten stories. I've done 400 now. <laughs> you have done And a lot. the first half of them I did before the pandemic because I started this in 2017. As
0: part of your book, Life is in the Transitions, is that correct? That's
1: part of my previous book, yeah, yeah. Life is in the Transitions, which ended up coming out in the pandemic when the entire planet was in a life transition and sort of was the right book at the right time because mm-hmm. it just sort of showed up with an understanding of what suddenly everybody was going through. And it worked. I mean, it just touched a nerve in that way that writers fantasized about, it, became a bestseller, became a TED Talk with millions of views, became a TED course, how to master life transitions, etc. And apropos of what we're talking about today, it became sort of clear to me, both in my gut and also just kind of reading the room, so to speak, that like that work was going to be the next domino to fall. And so I set out to collect another several hundred, and I started in the middle of the pandemic, and so not a single one was done in person. <laughs> and I was worried because this is all about these interviews work. Like, the process is insanely labor-intensive. Right, you got to find the people. You got to talk them into being, you know, sharing their stories, and then you got to talk to them, and then we transcribe them, and then I hire a team of people, and I've now done it two times, and we code these looking for patterns. So if they're not going to be intimate, it's a complete waste of time. If they're sure. not going to be raw and real and kind of go there, and I have to tell you, it didn't make a difference the remote. So I am, you know, call me hashtag right team Terry Gross. Right, I now believe. I now believe it can be done remotely and that you can get the same type of intimacy. And I would venture to say for a small minority, it might not work, but if a small minority, it might be better. Yeah. Actually, because you're not face to face and therefore you're not threatening, you know, and in the way that this sort of therapy process works, if, if there's a safe space, for some people, without the room and you're invading my space or I'm coming to you or there's a kind of theatricality involved in meeting in person, yeah. I actually think there's a scenario under which it can be better. Yeah.
0: I don't have to worry about the guest smelling the hummus on my breath if I'm doing it virtually.
1: You know, if it's hummus, you know, that might be effective. But if it's something other than hummus, you know, <laughs> it might, other things, say, that are popular in the Middle East, that you know, then it might be uh, it might be different.
0: Speaking of people we admire, I want to know why you dedicated this book to Pat Conroy.
1: Well, that, that comes back to this thing that it turns out that we share is I'm from Georgia, and I'm not from Atlanta, right, which is now, <laughs> of course, the center of the world. Uh, but it wasn't the center of the world when I was growing up, right? So I was born in Savannah, Georgia in, in 1964, and that was at a time I mean, just the fact that we're doing this thing, you know, in a podcast on, you know, meeting remotely with this, all this technology, that didn't exist when I was growing up. So Savannah, Georgia was out of the way, on the way to nowhere, unless you were like, Commuting from New York to Miami, and it was like halfway between on I ninety five, and you got off I ninety five and went to the Pirates House restaurant. Like it was on the way to nowhere, and it was this isolated, out of the corner world. Right, that at the time they called—I don't even know if you 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 know this—but they called it the Coastal Empire. Mm. So the Coastal Empire was like Savannah writ large, like so Savannah down to Brunswick and kind of up to Charleston, and. I had this kind of crazy dream of being a storyteller and writing. And the person from this part of the world who did that most effectively was Pat Conroy. And Pat, Now, in the context of the search and all the stuff we're going to be talking about today, what I now realize is your role models are incredibly important in your life because it's sort of like the first choice that you make about who you want to be and what you want to do. Right. We inherit our parents and sort of things about them, about work that we believe. But our role models are the first people that we choose, right? And so right. later in, in this book, one of the questions I encourage people to ask as part of my you know, 21 questions to find work you love is who is your role model? But more important, it's what do you admire about them? Because I have to say I'm nothing like Pat Conroy, right? Pat Conroy had, of course, a famously Baroque upbringing with this sort of romantic mother and a tough-as-nails you know, somewhat abusive father – and Pat and his mother used storytelling as a way to escape the horror, frankly, that they both lived in and the bruises that they both carried from, uh, from the same man. But he captured that part of the world. And the first book he wrote, which most people don't know, actually, you probably, if you're an admirer of his, I'm sure you know the story. But he went and taught high school on Defusky Island which is actually the adjacent island to Tybee Island, where I spent my summers growing up, and I now have a daughter named Tybee. You may or may not know. I have twin daughters, Eden and Tybee. And he wrote a book about it. And that was the the first book that he sold. He'd earlier written a book about his teacher at the Citadel, which he hand-sold and drove around. And then when he wrote The Water is Wide... He decided not to self-publish it, but to send it to an agent. And I just love this. It's one of my favorite stories of all time. So he sends the book to the agent who calls him and says, congratulations, Pat, I got $10,000. And Pat was like, $10,000? I can print it a lot cheaper in Charleston if I just print it myself. And the agent was like, no, 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 Pat. He's going to pay you $10,000, and then he's going to print it himself.
0: Right, right. (laughs)
1: So Pat was sort of open the door, you know, and as I say, in the dedication of this book, he, he wrote the way and for that, and later in my life, when I met him and became friendly with him, it was really still a highlight of my, of my professional life.
0: So I have to tell my Pat Conroy story. When people ask, you know, especially today when everybody's generating content and writing blog posts and stuff, when people ask me, what is the most important book I've ever read? You know, you want to say something pithy, like, you know, the Bible or some ancient Buddhist text. But to me, it was the Lord's of discipline. And this is why. Because in seventh grade, I was transitioning from child to young adult. I was very awkward. I was very- How's that
1: going? I think you're still working on that? I've
0: broken the shell. I've broken out. I'm I'm dealing with different kind of change. Your work is all about change. So we'll we'll talk about my change first. The first time in my life, I read a book that was absolutely engrossing and I lost myself (laughs) in it. And because of Pat Conroy, now it might've happened Mm -hmm. to somebody else, but because of Pat Conroy, I became a reader. And in fact, nice. I was reading The Lords of Discipline at Tybee Highland. Uh, oh. Yeah. And so, and I went on and read The Water is Wide, and I read The Great Santini. And so, Pat Conroy turned me into a writer. Later, he came to our high school, St. Pius High School in Atlanta, and spoke to us. And so, I feel like Pat has a pretty special place in my life as well. So the very first words I wrote read in the new book is to Pat Conroy.
1: God bless Pat Conroy and all the people he inspired and... You know, God bless these people that come into our lives when we are looking and searching and don't even know and give us an answer that we're not even aware that we're seeking.
0: A big part of your book is examining the preconceptions and assumptions we've made about work. And for guys in our fifty, mid and late 50s, respectively, we grew up with a certain set of expectations. What examples and what scripts were you presented with as a child about the work life?
1: Well, I love that question. And I think, you know, to, in some ways to frame the conversation, and I think this is what I appreciate about what you're doing, is trying to get everybody to rethink uh, a lot of the beliefs that they have about money and kind of rewrite the script. I do think it begins by identifying the script. And I think to sort of, you know, set the table here, One of the things that I would say in terms of the stakes of what we're talking about, we just are at this profound moment of change in this country around work. Seventy percent of us are unhappy with what we do. Three quarters of people I saw in a poll just last week, Paul, say they want to look for work in the next 12 months. Okay, A million people a week are quitting a job, not fired, not laid off, are quitting a job. That's 50 million people a year. That is a third of the workforce. And another third of the workforce is wrestling with where they work, when they work, how they work. That's two-thirds of the workforce. That's 100 million people are sitting across from someone they love, maybe today, tonight, tomorrow morning, and saying, I'm unhappy with what I do and I want to do something else. All of these numbers.
0: Or they're keeping it inside of them. (laughs) Or
1: they're keeping it inside of them and they're doing they're acting out that <laughs> right. frustration in ways that are destructive to themselves of and course. their relationships and probably even the, the organizations that they're working with. Yeah. These numbers are unprecedented, and we've never seen it. And I think that the essence of what, the way I would like to put it is people aren't happy with their career. But the problem is not with you. It's with the idea of the career and with this kind of core narrative. So you asked how I grew up. I grew up in Savannah, Georgia. My father – was in a family business, okay, that his father had started in a small concrete block building a few blocks from the Savannah River, which is essentially between Savannah and, and South Carolina, where we've just been talking about where packer packed up in Beaufort. And every Saturday morning, I had to go to work. I had to get up on a Saturday morning, you know, get myself dressed and presentable, walk to my grandparents' house, which was behind our house in the scene out of Faulkner, and um, my grandmother would make breakfast and I'd get in the car with my grandfather and he would take me down and I would sit behind a desk, a big old oak desk, and he would have lace-up oxford and suspenders and a bow tie. And I would take, my family was in the apartment business. And so I would take $18, $20, $22 checks. And I had to look the people in the eye and ask them how they were doing and record it in a ledger. And my grandfather would look over my shoulder, write in brag about my penmanship and good grades. And, and then he would tell stories and he would drive six miles an hour. he drove me crazy. And he would tell stories about his childhood in Mississippi, the first time he was in a car, the first time he was in, in air conditioning, the first time he was in an airplane. And the message in all these stories and all these Saturday mornings was that the most important thing in life was work, right? Not love, not family, not relationships, not happiness, all the stuff that we talk about today, work. In an old-fashioned, industrial, kind of linear way, you know, masculinity and hair tonic, right? Like that was the story. And I think that if one thing became apparent in these hundreds of interviews and thousands of hours and 10,000 pages of transcripts is that that story is dated, is irrelevant, and even at the time it was told was based on only one type of worker. Okay, I'm, I'm sitting at my desk, right? People, you know, can't see us, but we're seeing each other, right? And I'm sitting at my desk, and about at the beginning of this project, I'm going to write a book about work. Like, I'm going to go get the great, iconic books about work and success. And I, st- I got first editions of the five defining success books of the last century, okay? That's How to Win Friends and Influence People, The Power of Positive Thinking, what color is your parachute? Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. You can't have read a success book in the 20th century without touching one or multiples of those. And I turned every page and I researched every name. And the bottom line is of the nearly 700 people in those books, 93% were straight white men. And 7% were women and only point oh oh nine percent were people of color. We were telling only one kind of story. And it's all about climbing right? Up by your bootstraps, rags to riches, greater salary, higher floor, better view, more benefits. For a lot of people, that's still the story they want to tell. But that was the only story we were allowed to tell. And what's going on now is that a new generation of workers, younger, more female, you know, more diverse, are leading the way to reimagining we can tell different kinds of stories and each of us has to figure out the story we want to tell or we're never going to be happy and we're going to be looking for another job very soon.
0: The subtitle of the book is, it's the search, the subtitle being Finding Meaningful Work in a Post-Career World. Let's start with careers. So you're a writer. Let's get all etymological, Bruce. Mm. Where does the language around careers and work come from?
1: Love this. Fantastic topic. Why are we not talking about this? Okay. Yes, there are three lies about work. Uh, lie number one, you have a career. The word career comes from a chariot. It's actually a Latin word from the Middle Ages, and the chariot would run around a course. And so it was you were running around a course. Like, so a, a planet <laughs> career, you know, a, a moon careers around a right. planet, the planet yeah. careers around the sun. Like, that's what a career was. And it was never applied to work. Okay. Because for most of human history, as you know, um, People lived where they worked and they worked where they lived, right? They were on farms and they did everything. They, they not only did they tend the farm, but they made their own candles and they tended their own sick and they, you know, maybe grew their own food. So there was no idea. So not only was there no career, there was no job either. So the, the idea of a career was basically invented in 1908 by a guy named Frank Parsons in Boston. So what happens is in the middle of the 19th century, as the Industrial Revolution takes off, it sets in motion two things. Number one, millions of people, a third of the country, moves from a rural area to an urban area. And suddenly, they need something to do, okay? And all of these new businesses and companies and industrial plants set up, they need workers, okay? So you got a third of the has moved to a city. You've got all these immigrants that have come abroad. They're in the cities. And you have these companies that need them. So this guy named Frank Parsons, invents the idea of career counseling, opens a career center, and says, I'm going to match people, but only if they're males and only once, right? So you can do his process. They'd ask you a bunch of questions. They'd give you a list of companies and they'd make a match, but only once. If you wanted to do it again in five years, something was wrong with you. Right? You were deviant, okay? If you're a woman, it was not eligible for you. So he invents the, and within two years, every college in the country has career counseling. And then 50 years later, when work moves from the factory floor to the office floor and people start changing jobs, we need another invention and along comes the resume. There had never been a resume. There had never been a reason for a resume, okay? Because you lived where you worked and then you did one thing and now as people began to move, and what is a resume? A linear construct of jobs, a string that plays into this idea that each one is supposed to be better higher, more prestigious or more successful. What's great about the resume is it allows the idea that you can move jobs. The problem is if you're a you want to spend time with a child and you come back. If you get sick and you need to take time off. If your spouse needs to move, okay? If you want to get off of it for a while and go become an entrepreneur or start something new, or write or paint or give back and then you want to do something else 10 years later, the resume is a destructive form for that, and the idea of you do it once and only once is completely irrelevant, and that gets at the tension that you asked me about before, is that we have linear expectations mm-hmm. and we have nonlinear lives, and that tension between our expectations and our lives is the source of most of the unhappiness in the world today.
0: Yeah, you talk about that in the previous book, Life is in the Transitions, that any deviation from the linear expectation causes us stress, basically. Correct.
1: And you hear it, by the way, I feel like I'm interrupting your question, but you hear it with the language we use. I'm off track, right? I'm off kilter. I'm off schedule. Like the life I'm living is not the life I expected to live. I mean, I got cancer as a 43-year-old man, and I had three-year-old identical twin daughters, and I had parents in their 80s. Like, that was all, that's not supposed to happen. You know, your parents are supposed to get <laughs> no. sick, right? I'm not supposed yeah. to almost die yeah. and then literally be in bed for a year, be on crutches for two years. I was the walking guy, right? I wrote all these books, I made TV shows, I was like a modern Indiana Jones person traipsing around the world. And suddenly I couldn't walk, <laughs> right? So I have to, in fact, a lot of my interest in this comes from the fact that I had a linear life for decades, started out. You know, and this dream of writing books in my 20s, did it for no money, had some success, got married and had children. And then my life was overthrown in my 40s when it's not supposed to be. That's supposed to be the peak, right? Right. right. I had financial troubles. I got cancer. My dad has Parkinson's, tries to take his own life six times in 12 weeks. So suddenly I had this confluence of nonlinear events. And that's what got me interested in how do you tell your story when there's a blow up in the middle of the story, because it turns out all of us have a blow up in the middle of our story.
0: 40 years ago, or even fewer, you know, when I was coming out of business school, say in the mid 90s, late 90s, uh, mid late 90s, anyway, you're coming out, there's basically like four jobs yes. you could get, right? There's like banking, consulting, uh, marketing, something else. Sales was dirty work. Sales that was I actually totally wanted. dirty work, yeah. It's a dirty work, which is actually where I ended up going into. But but basically, you know, like, and then of course you could have a career in medicine or law or these other things too. But you were expected like, I'm going to graduate in my mid to late 20s with a professional credential and I'm going I'm to go work. And it wasn't quite the same as it was in the 70s or 80s where it's like, I expect to work for the same company for four yeah. decades, get a gold watch and then go hang it up and die of a heart attack on the golf course three weeks later. But it was like, you're going to go into this field and you're going to have a linear trajectory up and to the right. You're going to take on more responsibility. There was still sort of this military mentality that I think comes from our parents' generation of, you know, it, work is about duty. Yes. Work is, is regimented. You wear a, a suit because that's your uniform. And oh, dre- oh wait, you wait,
1: Paul, dress for the job you want, not the job you have. You're supposed to be dressing for the job. <laughs> that you aspire to several, down, several steps down the line or up the, up the rung of the ladder.
0: But work has always had this militaristic kind of, up until recently, a militaristic kind of structure to it. And then it was a little bit less 30 years ago. But today, there isn't the same kind of expectation, the, the, not the same career path. And you, you take great pains to describe why that path is not relevant anymore. And we're hurting ourselves when we try to think about having one singular path in life or in a career.
1: Yeah, I think that there's several reasons for that. And I think that's an important to kind of address this head on, right? So what are the three lies? Lie number one is you have a career, right? We've established that that's not true anymore. But lie number two is that you have a path, right? And so uh, let's talk about how it is that people work, okay? So you you mentioned life is in the transition. So what I discovered when I was working on my last book was that we go through three dozen disruptors in the course of our lives. That's one every 12 to 18 months. You know, for a lot of people, that's more often than they see a dentist. You know, and they could be as small as, <laughs> not you, you, what an amazing smile. This is a man who was well-dentist. Uh, it could be as small as a fender bender or a sprained ankle or as big as a natural disaster, uh, a, a global pandemic, okay? Most of these we get through, but one in 10 becomes what I call a life quake, right? And the whole the whole book is about how a life transition is essentially the human mechanism for responding to a life quake. And the, sort of the big idea there was that we go through three to five of these In our lives, and I think the signature piece of data in life is in the transitions, is that their average length is five years. So three to five in a lifetime, four, five, six years, that's 25 years, that's half of our adult lives we spend in transition. And yet we have stigmatized that as periods you have to grit and grind your way through. And we have, you know, kind of romanticized the the stable periods and we're looking at it wrong. We have to look at the transitional periods as opportunities for growth and renewal. So that's the backstory here. So when I come to work, the same thing keeps coming up. Like people go through these moments of inflection, right, and reevaluation and and reconsideration. You've described two of them in your life, even in this conversation. Like, do I want to be doing this, right? First, I go to business school. Then I get out of business school. You know, then I'm on the path. Do I want to get off and become a writer? Like, you know, start a podcast. These are, I call them work quakes. And the reason that I like life quake and work quake is that they're value neutral, and most of the way we talk about this is as, you know, crises, right, or catastrophes. But that's actually not the way it is because as many of them are voluntary as involuntary. And I think that's a frame. So I think, I said, I think the signature piece of data in, in life is in the transitions is that a life lifequake uh, lasts five years. The signature piece of data, in my view, in the search is that we go through 20 of these in the course of our lives. And that number is growing because and that's every 2.85 years—because women go through them more than men, Xers go through them more than boomers, millennials more than Xers, and Zers more than millennials. Why? And diverse people go through them more frequently than non-diverse people. So the workforce is getting younger, more female, more diverse, so we're going to go through them more frequently.
0: Why do those groups have higher frequency of work quakes than the other groups? Because they— don't have
1: the linear expectations that those of us who are 40 plus have. Right, They were not, it's not in the water and in the narrative and in the grandfather standing over my shoulder. They are living in a world where life moves faster, where the internet means change comes at us from all places. And it's not just work, as you know, Paul, and this is in some ways a big theme of my last book. They're changing jobs more frequently. They're moving more frequently. They're changing religious beliefs more frequently. They're changing romantic relationships more frequently. They're changing sexual orientation more frequently. They're just more accustomed to change. And they have embraced the idea that there are benefits of the nonlinear life. (laughs) That if you're not doing something that you don't like, and that's the the point I want to make. So to me, the signature piece of data in this book is not the number of work quakes, it's where they come from. The majority, 55%, don't begin in the workplace. They begin in our lives. They begin in our families, in our bodies, in our health, between our ears, in a mindset change. Because we are no longer willing to say, my life doesn't matter, I'm gonna put all my eggs in the work basket For my identity and my meaning. And that I think is the big deal. Harold Kushner, the, the famed rabbi who wrote When Bad Things Happen to Good People, he told me something 20 years ago in an interview that has stayed with me, which is that you and I grew up, Paul, when we believed that one of the primary metrics of success was to make more money than our parents. For many people today, that is going to be a lot harder. Just the real estate, the up the uptick in real estate value alone will make it very hard. Sure. So people below 40, they want to do better for their parents but they want to have more meaning than their parents. And that's what they're not willing to
0: sacrifice. Hey everybody. We'll be right back with Bruce Filer in just a moment. But I wanted to take a second to say I am very likely doing comedy near you in the near future. And I'd like to see you and or your friends, relatives, associates, or enemies at the show. Coming up this weekend, up to the Limestone Comedy Festival in Bloomington, Indiana. Week after next, i will be at Dunwoody Country Club in Atlanta, Georgia assorted other venues around Atlanta that you can find on my website, paulolinger.com. But most importantly, I've got my first headlighting weekend. That's both a Friday and a Saturday night at the Comedy Catch in Chattanooga, Tennessee, June 23rd and 24th. And I will be co-headlining the Charlotte Comedy Zone July 23rd with my friend Paul Faravar. By all means, check it out. Go to my website, paulolinger.com and click on shows to find out more. Thanks for your support. I appreciate it. It's interesting. I didn't think about work quick or life quake as, did you say value neutral? Value neutral. Or it's not, they're not just, they're not yeah. all
1: bad. I mean, I, I'm a parent of identical twins. Like when we had twins, it was joyful. It was a life quake. I mean, it changed everything about our <laughs> lives, trust <Yeah>. me.
0: <laughs> I've had the pleasure of interviewing Barry Schwartz, the author of um, The Paradox of Choice. Mm. And the nutshell of that book is that we think that choice is always good, but yes. beyond a certain point, choice makes us less happy, that we make worse choices and that we come to doubt them more. And so it seems to me that as I'm reading the book, it was hard, I had to check myself playing the old man, get off my lawn card a lot as I'm reading the book, like these young people, they just don't care, they don't wanna work hard, all that kind of stuff, right? So being honest and self-aware of my own prejudices, I have feeling that, but as you say value neutral, let's just say the next generation and generations, they have more choice, they have more flexibility. Whether that is a good thing or a bad thing isn't the question. The question is, what do you do with it? How do you get the best work, the best meaning out of the situation you're in?
1: You know, Bingo. There you go. I mean, that is exactly the question. So first of all, let me affirm and tell you I completely agree that <laughs> choice is paralyzing. I mean, the way I think of it, kind of my frame for this is there are the three lies, right? You have, you have a career. You don't have a career. You have a path. You don't have a path. You have a job. You know, we can talk about that or not. We all have multiple jobs these days. Yep. Uh, we have a main job and a side job and what I call a hope job and a ghost job. Um, we can leave that off stage here. But there's one truth. And the one truth is that only you can write the story of success that you want. Only you can decide the meaning you want and only you uh, can make the choices that you have to make. And I think you're exactly right that we get paralysis because there's too many choices. So there's the blessing— but the curse is, the way I like to think of it, is, is we get writer's block writing the story of our own lives. And I think that that is the core challenge. So how do we do that, okay? If you go back 100 years, most people had to live where their parents wanted them to live, do what their parents wanted them to do, believe what their parents wanted them to believe, love who their parents wanted them to love. So there was no freedom. And, and by the way, especially for women, this was really difficult. Today, that's not true. You can live where you want to live, believe what you want to believe, love who you want to love, do what you want to do. The problem is there's a lot of choices. And for most of us, they don't know how to do it. That's why, as you know, the bulk of this book was how do people who are happy and do find meaning in their work? How do they do it? And the answer to that question at its core is they do what I call a meaning audit, right? Is they do the personal archaeology involved in figuring out the story that they want to tell. And that involves. In perhaps the great paradox of this project, and to me, the great lesson of the search, which is the people who are happiest, don't climb. They dig. And they go back into their lives, their set of experiences, what they learned from their parents, the role models that they chose, the pain points that they've always had. And they figure out, this is the story that I've always been telling, and I need to focus on how to tell that story better today. And that's why the second half of the search is built around these, I call it 21 questions to find work you love. And it's the basic building blocks of good storytelling. Who is your who? What is your what? When is your when? Where is your where? You know, why is your why and how is your how? And the how is purposefully at the end because most of the way people talk about this, you've been in this world for years, you know it, is people focus on the how of getting a job, okay? You brush up your resume, you contact your close contacts and your weak contacts, right? And you tell everybody you're looking for a job, and guess what? You'll succeed. (laughs) And 2.85 years from now, you'll be unhappy again because you haven't done (laughs) this stuff. So how goes at the end? Before, you got to do the who, what, when, where, why to figure out where are you in your life and what's the story you want to be telling right now. Not five years ago, not two years from now, right now. What is the meaning that you need at this moment in time?
0: You talk to the people that are happy in their jobs. What are the consistent themes that came back? Was it that the people just sort of got in touch with themselves to understand what who they were at their core and wanted to do work that was an expression of that? I think that's part of
1: it. I mean, I would say a couple of things. Number one, I would say they stop chasing someone else's dream and they start chasing their own. Mm-hmm. I have a tension with my wife who's heard me now describe the search a couple of times and she keeps saying, you keep saying that people are happiest if they don't chase their parents' dreams. like And I don't believe that. And I'm like, it comes up over and over again. By the way, she's someone who didn't chase her parents' dream. A lot of people spend a, much, if not most, of their lives trying to chase someone else's dream of what they should do. So that's one. They don't chase someone else's dream. They chase their own. That's the, the first thing they do. The second thing they do is they do actually stop. And they do things. And, of course, the search has lots of these examples or of Writing lists or making, you know, right, making spreadsheets. Or someone I, t- you know, someone I talked to at LinkedIn who had left the company and wanted to leave, and she made a pie chart of like, what do I do that makes me happy? Like, there's a bunch of specific things they do, but yes, they do. They do this thing. They don't climb. They dig. They do what I call personal archaeology, of go back and try to understand what is the inner story that they inherited from their family, their culture, maybe their religion, from the country. And put that on the table so they can recognize it. And then I would say that the third thing that they do is that they make, I don't know how to say this, they make an unright choice at some point. Like everybody makes a choice that is counter to what they expect, that upsets somebody, that is the unright decision, right? They, they go down the, the unchosen path. They Because if there's no path, it doesn't matter, right? They chase the forgotten dream. They do something that's a little counter to those expectations and that script that they have. And to me, it's a, you, you mentioned the word script earlier because it comes up a lot in my book. We are handed a script about work, but each of us has, this is the Southerner in me, an internal scripture about work. And they look away from the script they've been handed, and they reconnect and commit to the scripture that they've always been carrying around within them.
0: It's hard to do. I did this. It's very, very hard to do because the script isn't just a script. The script has extrinsic metrics that you can use to say, look, At how well I'm doing because there's my rank, there's my serial number, there's my paycheck, Mm -hmm. there's the status I have in the industry. Org chart. And (laughs) yeah, I mean, like, so when I, you you talk about trying to please somebody else, Mm -hmm. and this is, this has nothing to do with her as a person because it's not her responsibility to be involved in this story, but she is regardless. So, after I left Facebook, was trying to figure out what I would do with my life, I'd think about, I, I knew I wanted to go back into comedy, but I was afraid to admit it because I had done comedy before Facebook, full-time in LA. Then I went back to Facebook. As I quit, I retired at 42 and I, I could live my life any way I wanted to. I knew I wanted to do stand-up comedy, but I was afraid. And I, because I might fail again, I would embarrass myself. And I thought to myself one day, what would Cheryl Sandberg think? <laughs> I'm a fan and a friend of Cheryl's." And I just thought to myself, that's the most pathetic thing I have ever thought in my entire life. I love Cheryl. Who gives a shit what Cheryl Sandberg thinks about my career choice? It's not her life. It's my life. And so we torture ourselves around these choices. And it's very, very hard to trust your instincts when all the extrinsic metrics point you away from that voice.
1: I think that's exactly right. I'm also a friend and fan of Cheryl Sandberg. And Cheryl Sandberg... Look at her life story. I mean, what is the whole theme of Option B, a book in which I am quoted, because I almost also died when I was a young person, as, as her husband Dave was, with young children. Yep. And yep. I formed a council of dads, an idea that Cheryl has been public, was something that was meaningful to her when she lost her husband Dave. Uh, but Option B is about the idea that sometimes Option A does not work out. Now, she may not have that voice in the world of work, where she was the you know the COO of a linear organization but she was in life and of course what have I been saying all along here w- which is that life is where most of the change comes from these days okay you know and funny you start talking about stand up comedy i was thinking about this woman i met Kelly Lively it's a great story she grew up in Iowa her family moves to Idaho and she cries the entire way um, her sister cries because her sister won't be popular. She cries because she doesn't think they're going to have, in you know, a running water in Idaho. And she goes to work <laughs> as a secretary at the Idaho National Labs, which, of course, is the great, you know, the great uh, nuclear facility in Idaho. And she's a sec- and she gets married and she has children. And she realizes that as a secretary, to use a now dated word, that she's not going anywhere. And so at age 30, kind of over the wishes of her husband, she goes back to get a college degree because she'd never gotten one And she slowly rises up in the Idaho labs, and she becomes the highest-ranking woman, the first one to take a nuclear reactor uh, from Idaho to uh, Florida to be part of a a space shuttle launch. She has a side job as a stand-up comedian. Of course she does. And she has now retired, a little bit older than 42, but not like, you know, deep into her 60s. And she's living on a houseboat and doing stand-up comedy. Because this is the opportunity of there is no job, is that we can have – we can juggle different things. And I said, well, let's just – be passed over it, but I want to talk about it because you just brought it up. So Mm -hmm. only half of us have a main job anymore. In my cohort, it was 39%. People don't have one job. They have up to five. A main job, that's fewer than half. Two-thirds of us have a care job, like caring for children or aging parents. Three quarters of us have a side job, which is something that we talk about a lot. But 86% of us have something I heard about so often I decided to name it, and that is I called it a hope job, which is something that we do that we hope becomes something else, like stand-up comedy, right? Or writing a yeah. screenplay yeah. or selling jewelry on Etsy or pickles at the farmer's market. For many of these, by the way, not only do we not get paid, which is how economists just, you know, economists call work you know, labor you do for money, but if you're selling pickles, you're probably paying out of pocket right, or you're podcasting initially, you're paying for this in the hope that it might become something else. And actually then 93% of us have, you know, this invisible time suck that feels like a job battling self-doubt, right, imposter syndrome or discrimination or bigotry or sobriety or mental health, which I call a ghost job. And the reason that I brought this up in response to this question is It shows that option A and option B no longer have to be at different times of your life. They can be simultaneous so that most entrepreneurs start this way. They have a main job maybe that they're doing for salary and benefits, but they have a side job they're doing or a hope job they're doing because it brings them more meaning. The same thing with a care job. So maybe, you know, I don't know if you're a parent, but like maybe your kid's on travel soccer, um, or maybe your kids are going through the college application death march, as mine did the last couple of years. Like, these take huge amounts of time. So, someone may say, you know, my kid's on travel soccer for the next two years. That's my number one job. And yeah. I'll put my own ambition or need for meaning or service behind. So, we can shift. This is the advantage of the nonlinear life. And that's why I I keep saying over and over again, the question is not what Cheryl wants, not what how to win friends and influence people says, You know, not what you see on CNBC. It's where you are today, knowing, accepting, embracing that it could be different in two years from now or four years or five years. How many people we know, our age, my age, who when they had children said, I want to spend more time as a parent and said, if I get off the escalator, I'll never be allowed back on again. What has squandered more human potential than that? And today it's no longer true. Get off for five years. You can get back on no problem
0: okay so the the obvious question when you're talking about chasing your hope job or living your dreams or whatever is okay that's fine that's all well and good but you still have financial responsibilities and that those should um trump your your dream like first thing you got to put a roof over your head you got to take care of your kids you got to you got to feed yourself so how do you what what's the tension between those two things and are are Is the next generation being realistic about the tension there?
1: Here's what's non-negotiable, Paul, and I think the frame for every conversation about work. Fewer people are searching merely for work anymore. More people are searching for work with meaning. We are transitioning from a means-based economy to a meaning-based economy. The question that you have to ask over and over again is what gives you meaning today? And today, that might be money. And that might be security, and that might be healthcare benefits, but the thing to understand is that it may not always be that way. Just look at people that you know. We all know people who start out in their 20s trying for a dream, whether that's playing center field for the Yankees, or, you know, making the national ski team, or writing the great American novel, or writing a Broadway musical, or becoming a tap dancer, and they do this for a while— and then they maybe they settle down and have children, and they realize, okay, I suddenly have different needs. I want a house. I need a mortgage. Trust me, I'm sending two kids to college in 100 days. I understand this. <laughs> but we also know people, Paul, who do what you did, which is set out down that conventional path, you know, defining themselves by money and success and title and these, these metrics of achievement, who then get to a point, in your case, it might have been 42. For other people, it's 52. For other people, it's 62. And they say, I want to climb a different mountain now. I want to do something else. I want to give back. And so what I've tried to design in the search is a toolkit for helping people figure it out at any given moment. Okay? Mm -hmm. And then, by the way, once you're in a relationship, then suddenly you're not the only who. The first question is who is your who? Okay? I ask people all these questions, right? And one of the first questions I ask, you're a questioner, right? This will be interesting to you, uh, I suspect. I said to people, and I'll ask you, Paul, what are the prominent upsides or values of work you learned from your parents? I'm asking you, what were the prominent values of work you learned from your parents? Security, okay? So I asked everybody this question. Turns out two-thirds of the people said the value of hard work, right, which is what I would have learned. Now, it's interesting. You've said security, which is a very different answer. Then mm. I realized, okay, this is, this is interesting, but it's not that interesting, Then I started asking what I'm about to ask you now. What were the prominent downsides of work you learned from your parents?
0: Being beholden to someone else. Okay, fine.
1: So this is very interesting to me, okay? Here the answers were interesting. The number one answer was they're bunched more tightly. What are the prominent upsides you learned from your parents? 67% hard work. Then the next two in their teens were love what you do and be true to yourself. The prominent downsides, all basically around 30%. Number one, overwork. Number two, strain on your family. And number three, they were unhappy. So what we've heard from you is security was the upside. And interestingly enough, you said in the first half of your work life, you chose something that was secure and traditional and gave you those conventional metrics. But then I said the downsides. And what did you say? Being beholden to someone else. And then we know halfway down this journey, you changed and said, I want to be beholden to myself. So what I'm saying is, That's one question. It just took us 60 seconds, and we've already established this fascinating frame that it turns out that you have been reenacting the scripts without being aware of them. That's the essence of this project, is trying to say you are being shaped by your narrative, your scripture, your ghosts, your expectations. You're going to make a lot better decisions if you bring those ghosts and expectations and scripture into the room, into the conversation
0: where you're making these decisions. Yeah, I think you're going to have to send me an invoice for that, counselor. (laughs) (laughs) We got deep in a hurry.
1: The search, finding meaningful work in a post-career world—it's um, oh, twenty-nine dollars in the United
0: States. So there you go. <laughs> and if you buy it, on, I've got my you copy on, right here. got my copy already... right there. And if you buy it on Amazon, <laughs> yeah. it's probably discounted. So as I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking, okay, what are the implications for employers yes. if, if people are looking not just for work but for work with meaning? What are the implications for employers? And you have a nice framework of meaning that comes up in both these last two books, the ABCs. Let's talk about that. Yeah,
1: I think, the, I think that, you know, if you go back to this thing about, okay, the good news is we can make our own meaning. How do we do that? It turns out that there are, this was the hardest single thing in these two books, in these thousands of hours of interviews, was to figure out how do we make meaning, okay? And it turns out there are three levers that we pull. Um, as you say, um, I call them the ABCs of meaning. Let's break them down. The A is agency. Okay, what is agency? Agency is what we do or make or control, okay? For many of us, it's our, our work story, actually, the thing that we do that gives us autonomy and a, sen- and a sense of self-esteem and confidence, okay? In narrative terms, that's our me story. The B is belonging, so belonging is our relationships, okay? Our colleagues, our family, our loved ones, our co-religionists, the people we march in our political rallies with. So the B is our relationships, okay? In narrative terms, that's our we story. And the C is a cause, okay? That's a calling, a purpose, something higher than themselves, okay? In narrative terms, that would be our the story. So what i realize is that we all have all three within us, okay? So I'm gonna say, so I'll give me my, my example. I'm a writer. I'm a creative person, so I'm very agentic. I'm an ABC. B, a belonging, I'm a super-involved family member, a very hands-on dad. Cause is less important to me. I'm an ABC. I would probably say I'm uh, maybe 50, 40, 10. Okay, my wife is a CAB. She's an entrepreneur. She started an organization called Endeavor that supports high-impact entrepreneurs in 50 countries around the world. She gives, 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 gives. She's a co-founder and a CEO, so she's very agentic. You know, other than family, relationships are not that important to her. She's probably, oh, you know, maybe 50, 30, 20, if I had to say. So what are you? What's your A, B, C, what's your order, and what percentage would you allot them?
0: It's interesting, you know, I was thinking about this a lot. One of the things I learned about work when I left work was that the B meant a lot more to me than I thought Mm -hmm. it did. And I didn't realize that until I was sitting by myself in my lovely home and I was like, why am I not happy? Mm -hmm. It's like, because I'm not part of a team. I'm one of six kids. I've always been individualistic, but also highly rewarded by affiliation. So I think belonging is a big one to me, even though I work as an independent comedian and as an independent podcaster, I miss having that interaction a lot.
1: So I think to me, here's what jumps out of that story to me. What is, is that in the moment of transition, you did this meaning audit, you recognize this thing about you and you had to make adjustments. And that's the big revelation here, I would say, which is to say in a transition, we rebalance our ABCs of meaning, right? Mm-hmm. So I think of mm-hmm. these and there's a visualization in the search about this as like, um, Lady Justice, not with two trays, but with three, right? We have pebbles in them. So maybe you've been working very hard and you get laid off, right? Or you want to start something new or, you know, you, you have a change of heart. And so then maybe you rebalance and you become more belonging oriented. Or the inverse, maybe you've been raising children or caring for an aging relative, as I've spent a lot of time doing in the last three years. And then you say, you know what, I want to do something for myself right now, right? Or maybe you give back and you're burned out and you say, you know what, I want to spend more time with my family or write a memoir or whatever it might be. So, the, again, the blessing of the nonlinear life is you can make these changes the the challenge and which is the challenge I'm trying to meet here is how do you do this audit, this archaeology, this kind of self-evaluation to figure out, okay, I thought I Paul think I'm gonna leave my you know Fortune one hundred business and go work for myself And I'm going from A to A and I realize, oh, wow, I've just lost B. My B has been downgraded (laughs) and therefore I want to, you know, there's a story, a wonderful story in my book of Joey Clift, who's a Native American comedian, right, who started a, I think it's got 30,000 members of like, you know, comedy writers in LA who share pictures of their cats, right? So it's sort of like I need some belonging in my life, even though I'm going to be independent. Maybe I'm going to start a podcast and interview people or whatever it might be. And so I think that that's. That's the essence in these periods of transition, lifequakes, workquakes, whichever one you're going through, where we reevaluate and readjust the weight we give to each of the ABCs of meaning. The meaning is what's non-negotiable. Everything else is entirely and almost constantly uh, renegotiable.
0: So what does that mean for employers? I mean, oh, like, yeah, right. look, somebody's got to work at the cement plant, right? And I mean, can you really, and I don't mean to denigrate any of the work done there, right? Can you really expect for an employee who's doing hard labor outside to say, well, this cement goes and builds hospitals or it builds homes for you know to protect children and all that kind of stuff? How do people that are really working on drudgery connect their work to the ABCs? And how can employers create better environments for people to see those values? There's two choices here.
1: One choice is to ignore what's happening, to ignore the fact that your workers care about meaning, that your workers care about quality of well-being, that your workers care about mental health, that your workers care um, about how they're communicated with. And you look at every single metric, 86 percent – I saw a study recently – 86 percent of millennials believe that they care more about employee well-being, you know, than do the previous generations. And who are the previous generations? Their bosses. So you can ignore it. And guess what? Your workers 40 minus and increasing your workers 40 plus will leave in 2.85 years because somebody else will. The two options are move in this direction or change so that you can recruit and retain the talent that you want. So those are the two choices. So how is this being done? I think it's being done in lots of different ways. So first of all, At any organization that you can think of that is successfully adopting and adapting to this new reality, the employee well-being department, which was downstairs in the basement next to the incinerator with no windows (laughs) three years ago, is a lot bigger now, right? Because the old days it was, oh, Paul, you're having a crisis or you're having a baby, right? Or your child has an anxiety disorder or you've had a relapse into your addiction issue, right? I've done 400 stories, Paul. A quarter of them involve addiction. Mm. Either the people addicted or their loved ones are addicted or their children or a colleague. Like mental health is, I don't have to tell you, at the top of every conversation about work. So it used to be Here's a fruit basket, you know? <laughs> Come back to work when you're ready to work and don't bug me, okay? Fruit basket, nice. It's nice. not going to work, right? The uh, you know Whatever, the edible arrangements is not going to solve <laughs> your problem right. anymore. You're going to need a conversation about this. In effect, what you need is a meaning agenda because here's the thing. You find a, a way to bring it into the workplace and put borders around it, right? So there's a brown bag lunch or there's a session, right? Or there's a a learning and development afternoon, right? Or there's open conversations about diversity, equity, inclusion. You figure out a way to do it in a controlled way, or it will take over every single conversation that you have because Mm -hmm. that's what you don't want. Because if you don't attempt to bring it in, it's just going to happen behind your back, okay? And behind closed doors, And it's going to completely wreck morale. People didn't seek this conversation out, but the workers are. And that's what's going on here. There's a kind of a rebalancing of power in modest but yet critical ways from employers to employees. And because we are moving to a world in which workers have many more choices. So ignore it and just keep replacing your people every six months. Or find a way to meet it. And then you're going to find people are going to be happier, more productive, and they're going to contribute. I'll just give you one example. We talked about the fact that three-quarters of people have a side job. I bet there's not a boss in this country who doesn't think, if you work for me, Paul, and you have a side job as a stand-up comedian, that that's making your job, you less productive at your job. That's wrong. Interesting enough, if we make cement in my company where you work, if you have a side job... Making patios for people, using bluestone and cement, you'll actually be less happy and productive at work. But if you have a side job that's something else, like being a stand-up comedian or a notary public, right, or selling those blueberry muffins at the farmer's market we talked about earlier, you'll actually be happier, be more meaningful, and be more willing to engage your work because you're making a conscious decision, I'm doing this work for this set of reasons and the meaning I want, which I may not be getting from making cement, I'm getting from stand-up comedy or selling pickles. So I'm actually just, in general, happier, which makes me better at my job.
0: Mm. How did the research that you've done through these past six years, you said you've been doing Six years. I started in 2017 collecting these stories. How has it changed the way you approach
1: your work? Number one, that's a great question. Number one it's made me much more willing to be vulnerable about whatever difficulties that I might face. You know, we began this. This conversation. is the
0: guy that wrote the Council of Death. This is the guy that's who pretty wrote vulnerable a book Bruce.
1: about a cancer and almost dying. And what I realized from that, for those of you who don't know the story, I got <laughs> found a nine, my doctors found a nine inch tumor in my left leg. I had three year olds. It looked like I was going to die. I asked a group of friends to be present. And what was interesting, what that book turned out to be about actually, was less about the cancer, actually, and more about male friendship. Mm. And how one of the changes that we've undergone is that women are much more involved in the workplace, which we talk about a lot, but men are much more involved in the parenting and family space and actually, you know, kind of male vulnerability. That book was, I wrote that book. Yeah, uh, it actually will be uh, next month when we're having this conversation, 15 years wow. since I got cancer and um, had the idea to create the Council of Dads three days later. The idea of male vulnerability is much more present in the culture than it was 15 years ago. Totally. Hmm.
0: But but that was a pretty vulnerable book. And you're yes. saying that this work that you've done has made you more vulnerable. E- even more. You
1: know, We began by saying, Could, can you be vulnerable remotely? Yes. In every conversation, I would begin. I mean, I... My father tried to kill himself six times in 12 weeks. Like, this was a story that was not supposed to be in public. And the reason that I didn't do it was because I didn't know, I'm a storyteller. Okay? Mm-hmm. I've written 15 books. I've written seven New York Times bestsellers. I've sold you know, a, a lot of books. But I didn't know how to tell this story. And I'm a professional storyteller. But when I started telling it, everybody had a story of how, when their life was blown up, this nonlinear moment in their lives. And so I realized if if I can't do it, how is someone else going to do it? So I think the first thing is to be more vulnerable, Okay, bring that challenge into the workplace in this context. And then the second was to think much more consciously about the idea of a life story. You know, we said at the outset of this conversation that narrative psychology was in the fringes of, psych- of academic ideas in the 1980s. And in the last 30 years, it's moved to the center. A number of reasons. We understand a lot more about stories. But also, we now can look inside people's brains, right? And we have neuroscience. And we understand that our, our lives are wired for story. So I'll just tell you a story. It's a beautiful day here. It's spring. The wildflowers are out. I walked downstairs this morning. I opened my door, and what did I see in front of me? Okay, when I'm telling that story, your brain is already finishing that story, like ending where it's going to go. So you think what I'm going to see, what I'm gonna see, I've mentioned the flowers and the beautiful weather, and it's springtime. And now I'm going to tell you the story. It's a beautiful day. It rained overnight. The wildflowers are out. I go downstairs. I open the door. What do I see? A giant pile of donuts. OK, so what happens to you? In your case, you just laughed, right? Because what your brain told you, I'm not expecting donuts. I'm expecting wildflowers,
0: right? Well, it's Brooklyn, so I was expecting something else. But yeah, that's well, fine. exactly. The, the, you know, the rats
1: are gone in the morning. They only come out at night. So, you know, get, get your mind out of the gutter where the rats are. So our job in our lives is to adjust and readjust our stories when we are faced with a pile of donuts. And what are we going to do with that pile of donuts? OK, are we going to go back inside and say, I'm not going to go out? Okay, we're going to start eating them? Are we going to walk around them and ignore them? Are we going to take them and start giving them out to people and making a you know, belonging connection? So, the thing that I've learned is that the story of who we are is not part of us, it is us in a fundamental way. Like, life is the story that you tell yourself. And so, like what I tell my children is you have to think of your life as a story. And when something unpleasant happens to you, your job is to make it a story, find some humor. Find some growth. Acknowledge the vulnerability and the pain. But you want to begin to add new chapters in your life of how you accommodated the pile of donuts or the tornado or the downsizing, you know, or the diagnosis or the pandemic. Because these are coming at us every 12 to 18 months, more often than you see a dentist. (laughs) We can get through them more successfully (laughs) or we can be overturned by them and stymied by them. And our job is to begin to think of our lives as a story and use these tools to tell that story more effectively.
0: Just a couple of personal questions, and I want to let you go. You've written seven, seven New York Times bestsellers. As this book comes out, have you learned to put a healthy distance between your book sales and your sense of self-worth?
1: Is anybody going to care
0: if I have an eighth or <laughs> New York Times
1: bestseller well, or not? Well, you. I'm <laughs> asking about You. How do you feel about it? I grew up in an isolated corner of the world in Savannah, Georgia, (laughs) heroizing and fascinated by Pat Conroy, who had a much more difficult childhood and young adulthood than I ever did, who managed to turn that pain into beautiful stories. And I have felt, and I'm unusual in that I stumbled early on in my life into a way of living my
0: life that I enjoy, but that's very hard to pull off. And to sustain, even harder to sustain.
1: And, and just as hard, if not harder, to sustain. So am I aware that I have this tendency to fall prey to my own instincts and to my own narratives? Uh, absolutely. But am I also aware, because of the fact that I almost died 15 years ago, <laughs> because of the fact that I've now talked to people who've been through much more horrifying circumstances than I, there is a floor beneath me which I am incapable of. of of falling. And that is the floor of despair and unhappiness and misery and meaninglessness. So do I believe that this story will change the lives uh, of millions of people if they can encounter this idea? Absolutely. Am I working hard to make that happen? Uh, 100%. If it doesn't happen, will I be okay? 1,000%. Because this is a blessing there's nothing more powerful, as you have learned, by looking people in the eye and say, tell me your story. <laughs> you know, and my message to people out there is if you are stuck or feel trapped in someone else's script <laughs> or feel like you were chasing dreams that are not your own, come meet the people in this book and the story of what they overcame. I think of this book – I mean, I don't know if you know this, but the, but the word informational interview actually was invented in What Color Is Your Parachute and in that book. I think of this book as the greatest collection of the largest collection of informational interviews ever assembled in one place as people talk. And you can find, forget me, you can find inspiration at them to tell the story that you want to tell and get the meaning that you want and the happiness that you crave. Do you feel rich? I cannot remember the last time I thought about the word rich. It's not even a, a word that's in my uh, vocabulary. I feel. Bountiful. I feel treasure all around me, uh, and I feel privileged that other people are willing to share their richness with me, and that I can play a small role in helping other people live a more enriched life.
0: Bruce, this has been a real treat. Thanks for taking the time. The new book is called "The Search: Finding Meaningful Work in a Post-Career World." Where can our listeners find out more about you and your copious work?
1: This is amazing, actually.
0: I have hair in the back of my neck that's
1: rising, and I'm just a wonderful feeling, and I'm grateful that we have been connected. The search, you can get wherever you buy your books. Uh, There's an audio book that I just recorded, and you can buy it wherever you buy your books. It's out now. You can follow me on all sorts of social channels at Bruce Feiler. That's F-E-I-L-E-R. That's Instagram, LinkedIn, Bruce Feiler, author. On Facebook, I write a weekly newsletter. Uh, as I think you know, called the nonlinear life, which is at brucefiler.substack.com. And if you go to brucefiler.com, I try to answer every email. Uh, nothing would make me happier than to keep this conversation alive.
0: Thanks a million, man. We'll put links to all that in the show notes. Bruce Filer, once again, thank you very much. Uh, my pleasure, Paul. All right. That was cool talking to Bruce Filer. It's funny, I'd read his book, Abraham, 20 something years ago. I remember discussing it with my mom. It's about how Abraham was claimed by members of three faiths, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, as one of their forefathers, I suppose. I did not reread it for purposes of this interview, but uh, did familiarize myself with some of his other books, both Council of Dads and Life is in the Transitions, which I had read all or part of up to that point. Anyway, lots of fun, and I'm very grateful to former Crazy Money two-time guest. He's in the two-timers club. A.J. Jacobs, for setting me up with Bruce. I greatly appreciate the recommendation and connection, AJ. Let's talk takeaways. First of all, I think the point about stopping to chase someone else's dream doesn't have to be generational. I think this is something that maybe we all bump into at a certain point when we get to a point in our careers where we go, I have to be working for more than just means. And this, this distinction between a means-based economy and a meaning-based economy is a really important one. I don't know how practical it is. And I struggle with this. And I admit to my struggle in talking to Bruce about it that I, part of this is generational. And I think that we don't do enough as a society to get people to a place where they're engaged in financial autonomy. And your first responsibility to yourself, to your family is to pay for your food and your rent and to not be a drag on somebody else. That should be everybody's first financial goal. Be self-sustaining. And if you can find meaning beyond that, well, that's pretty damn good. But stopping to chase someone else's dream. Now, whose dream was it that I should get rich? It wasn't my father's dream. It wasn't my mother's dream. They wanted me to be healthy and happy. I think I imposed that dream on myself. How that looked to me, is another question. And I think at a certain point, when you replace your mom and dad with Cheryl Sandberg as to whose approval are you looking for, I think that's a healthy exercise. Even if it's embarrassing as all hell when you go, what do I care? Who am I trying to impress in this life? Nobody. My kids, maybe. They're not impressed. They're so not impressed. I'm doing it for me. And you should do it for you and you should live your life on those terms after you've taken care of your primary responsibilities. Along those lines, I still refuse to believe that hard work isn't important. And no, Bruce didn't say that. He didn't say you don't have to work hard. But somewhere in there, I think the, the importance of hard work is lost. Like, well, I'm just living life for my own meaning. Well, okay, fine. You know, the people who are succeeding the most as comedians that I know, are the ones who are working the hardest. It matters. And if whether you're working for somebody else, for yourself, whether you're working for means or for meaning, hard work is an absolute critical key to getting as far as you can go. Yes, that sounded linear. Uh, Speaking of which, the concept of linear expectations versus a non-linear reality is one that really stood out for me. We believe somewhere in our souls, especially those of us who are linear thinkers who believe in hard work, we believe that if we work hard, if we do the right preparation, if we put ourselves in the right situations, that our careers will be linear. Well, I think they're anything but. And even for those of us that try to manage them in the most traditional ways, going to the law firm, making partner making senior partner, making managing partner, blah, blah, blah. At a certain point, there's a yearning inside of us that, or there's an exogenous experience or incident that forces us off that linear path. And especially for those black and white thinkers, those linear thinkers being forced off that path can be highly disconcerting. Even if you're the one that takes yourself off that path, You have to stop thinking in a linear way. You have to stop looking for those external rewards and indications that you're doing okay. And you have to create, coming back to the defining your own dream, you have to define your own metrics. You have to say, I'm working on these terms for myself and I will determine my success based not on the way I used to determine it, but on the way that my new reality dictates. That's being fair to yourself. That's giving, giving your dream the real credence it deserves, giving your work the real credence it deserves so that you can end up doing your best work no matter what that looks like. Agency, belonging, and cause. Think of those as sources for meaning in your own life. Are you doing the kind of work you want to do? Are you determining your own future? Do you belong to a group of people? Are you around? Are you working with groups of people who lift you up as opposed to holding you down, and C, does your work inform? Is your work informed by an underlying cause for which you want to dedicate part of your life? All very interesting questions. I encourage you to check out Bruce's work. The link to his website is in the show notes, or it's just Bruce Filer, F E I L E I Also, have a link to his Substack there. By all means, keep your eyes out for his stuff. And I look forward to talking to you on the next Crazy Money. In the meantime, Mike Carano, make me sound smart.